Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by a repeat guest, Travis Christofferson, who wrote the fantastic book that catapulted my interest in final appreciation of the important influence of diet and cancer and he wrote the book, the uh, Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer, and fabulous book. If you haven't read it, it's probably to put on your do, uh, to read list, but he's written another book called Curable, which addresses the issue of what has happened to American healthcare. What are the foundational uh, disruptions or corruptions in the system that has flawed to a point where it's, it's, it's really a travesty, and that, that would be a light term. So the book, again, is Curable, and uh, we're just delighted to have Travis. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Travis. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So your book, in some ways, was based on the theory that was promoted in Moneyball, which is a book and a movie, I believe, and uh, really describes how you can use statistics to really massively improve a, a flawed system, or at least a system that was based on strategies that have been used for long periods of time and generally believed to be accurate, but then found that with further analysis, it wasn't. So why don't you start there and maybe the motivation for the book? Yeah, the motivation, I was lucky to kind of have an epiphany moment. Um, after Tripping Over the Truth, I think the next year, I'd been invited to uh, speak at a small charity event in London. And one of the speakers, the speakers that went right after me was Dr. Nadaba Mazabuko. And he was at this startup um, clinic called Care Oncology in the UK. And the idea behind this clinic was there are drugs that have gone off patent that have a, a you know, whole nother life to them, but they're un, unrealized, they're undervalued in the system. And one of these drugs, for example, is metformin in the use of cancer. And because it's off, you know, there's this just vast body of data to suggest it can improve cancer outcomes. But there's no good mechanism for the system to get this on the prescription pads of doctors. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. So there's a flaw in the system. And they, to address this flaw or this, this uh, you know, underappreciated part of it, they, they opened this clinic and, and prescribed a combination of four drugs that showed they had synergy, very few side effects, and the best chance to help outcomes in cancer. And the cost of the drugs is, is phenomenal. It's about $60. Um, per month. So, per month, yeah, per month. So I was, I was really enthusiastic about what they were doing, and we started collaborating, and I agreed to open up a clinic in the U.S. to help them start in the U.S. And I opened it up in my small town, Rapid City, a physical clinic, and we started doing um, uh, telemedicine as well to address the rest of the country. But I... I Set a, I arranged a time to come speak at the, our local hospital, our local cancer center, to present what we were doing to the local oncologists. And my hope was that they would see the value in it and refer patients to us, and especially the patients like with, with you know, dire cancers like glioblastoma, where there's few good treatment options, and this is such a low-risk intervention that it had a you know, good potential to help. Um, so I went in there and, and I was sitting and I presented these the data, the same data that the doctors in the UK had looked at to determine this was, you know, a, value, a valuable treatment. And immediately when I was done, there's probably, you know, 15 oncologists in the room, nurses, head pharmacists, the medical director. And one of the oncologists just lit into me, um, you know, and, and what's stuck in my mind is he accused us of taking, 
taking uh, advantage of desperate patients. And then he brought up, why would you bring, why would you prescribe a medication for type two diabetes for cancer? And another oncologist in the room in the corner said, well, I do that. And so what struck me in that moment is you can have these medical doctors in the same room that have a profound disagreement on data that have we just gone through and, and how inefficient, you know, if this is the case, how, what are the inefficiencies in the healthcare system? And so that drove me to, you know, that was the original spark for the book. And when you look at all these institutions across the country, um, th that we deal with in our lives, the arenas, uh, say, of, say sports or um, financial things and healthcare. And Michael Lewis had written this wonderful book, Moneyball, that, that showed how within the, a simple game of baseball, um, you can have these massive inefficiencies. And by taking away the human biases and just applying statistics to, to, to find what is undervalued in that, in that market, you can, you know, catapult a team, the Oakland A's, which had a tiny budget. It was three times less than the New York Yankees, up towards the top in performance. And so he, he tells a great story, Michael Lewis, when he was deciding to, to write the book. He was doing the research, and he happened to walk in the A's locker room. And he walked in there right when the Oakland A's were taking a shower, and he saw these guys naked. And he said it was just, these don't look like professional athletes. You know, they were overweight, kind of misshapen. But that was the reason why the talent scouts were misvaluing these players. And so in healthcare, we have, we have such a massive disparity in valuations, how we value treatments. As I said, metformin has got you know, massive repositories of data that suggest it can ward off not only cancer, but a plethora of chronic disease. But it's priced at a nickel a pill and, and very rarely gets prescribed. So that was kind of this, what the book really dove into is finding is just an examination of, of these huge disparities in healthcare and why it's gotten so out of control in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting that the physician in the meeting you attended accused you of trying to make money from this when obviously there's not much margin in buying and selling generic drugs uh, at pretty close to cost when every oncologist for the most part is it's legal to sell them the, the very expensive chemo agents that can frequently net the provider tens of thousands of dollars in net revenue so it, it is really somewhat ironical that he would have the audacity to state that yeah and it gets it gets hidden in the veil of the system right i mean we we sort of enshrine this cloak uh, this this title of expert and we want to believe in, in the experts that we you know, defer to. Um, and so I think that allows, within the, the realm of human bias, that allows that behavior to just go on unchecked, where, yeah, you can prescribe a treatment that costs, say, a couple hundred thousand dollars and may not extend life you know, very meaningfully at all. They just sort of get away with it in that arena. So... You know, the topic you chose is, I think, a really important one because our current system is, is radically flawed and needs some, some incredible revision soon. And it's, it, as uh, I, I actually interviewed Marty McCary, who's a professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins, and wrote a similar book to yours. It's being published about the same time called The Price We Pay. And I actually listened to Peter, Diamant, uh, Peter Atia's interview with him recently also, and he pointed out Something I didn't realize is that the healthcare system is the largest industry in the United States. It's $3 trillion. 
That's bigger yeah. than any industry at all. So it's not hard to understand that there are incredible mo financial motivations to capitalize on this and they exist and they're really a large part of the problem. So I'm wondering, so that's sort of a basis and I'm wondering if you could briefly differentiate the approach you took to addressing this issue versus the one McCary took. Yeah, I, well, I think like he said in that interview, you know, uh, you could probably write a hundred books on this topic mm -hmm. uh, and still not even encompass the entire thing. So yeah, I, I believe his book, judging from the interview, focused most on the, um, you know, the price aspect of why, how they get away with the sort of gouging behavior and what to do about it. Um, yeah, $3 trillion in churn, and then most of that financial toxicity lands. I, the stat that really, that really struck home with me in that interview was, I think one in five Americans have medical debt. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. So the system is, is so broken. You know, it's such a massive part of our GDP. It's just sucking away from, from everything. And so you have, do have these sort of uh, disruptors that are looking at how to make this market more efficient. What can you do to make it more efficient? And you look at, there's two sort of buckets that I kind of put it in, in my book. You look at the variation in treatment and the over-treatment, which is a huge part of it. I, you can, there's numbers that go up as high when you include the fraud, the middle management, and just the over-treatment from physicians in general. It's 50% of all healthcare. And then the other bucket that I looked at were, the again, these undervalued treatments, the treatments that, that you focus on a lot, Dr. McCullough, um, diet, uh, you know, vitamin D, things, what are the things that, that are very low cost that if we incorporated would have a big difference in outcome? Because if we can prevent disease, then we can prevent this massive cost ex escalation. And so I try to find examples of people doing this um, in the book. And one, one of the good ones, that was interesting. There's these, you know, one, one of the, and he talked about this in the interview. If you go to a single payer, you kind of lose out on this creative marketplace, you know, this dynamic creatives innovation that we have in the marketplace and that we're seeing now. Geisinger Health is a health system in Pennsylvania. And for type two diabetes, what they decided to do is they introduced this thing called the fresh food pharmacy. And so they give patients with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes a prescription to this. Basically, it's just a grocery store with fresh, fresh good food. And they allowed them two meals a day that were free. And then they give them recipes and then really intensive care. So they, they wouldn't let them fall through the cracks. You know, they, if they had any questions, there were always support for them. And the outcome of that, just, you know, fast forward to the outcome, it was an 80% drop in per year outlays in cost. For, for type two diabetics, which we know is a huge, you know, there, there's huge ancillary cost to that, that disease. And A1C dropped, I think two percentage points, a huge reduction, and it only costs them $2,600 a year. So this is a drugless treatment that has this incredible outcome that's cheap. And the human, what, what interests me about that is they didn't leave out the human component. They made sure that the patients, they, they let their families be engaged. They, they gave free food to the family so they could all cook together. Pretty soon when they, when people have this level of engagement and feel like they're part of the system, they start asking questions. Well, what else can I do? Can I exercise? Um, how do I stop smoking? And so not only is it changing their health status, but it's changing the way their families view health and what they do about it. So to me that, you know, there's these wonderful examples of, places, these pockets that are doing 
extraordinarily good work. Um, the other one I focused on is Intermountain Health, which shockingly, if you extrapolated, it's a health chain of, of hospitals in Utah and Idaho. If you extrapolated their system to the rest of the US, we would see a 40% reduction in healthcare costs immediately. So there are, you know, there's places that are doing the right, doing this, doing this very well. Yeah, this is a stark contrast to certain not-for-profit hospitals that McCary describes in his book that uh, essentially constitute the majority, 95% of legal cases in their local town in the courthouse. So they are essentially practicing predatory billing uh, on these very poor people and essentially bankrupting them and using the court system as their collection agency. So it's such a travesty when you have these huge financial incentives that certain individuals just get corrupted and, and push the system in the wrong direction. So I wanted you to talk about this aspect because another fun, fundamental issue that really needs to be addressed is the physician. So when, when we're, as a medical student, almost every medical student is very altruistic going into medicine for the right reasons. And then they get brainwashed. They're never given the proper education and the tools to address the fundamental reasons why people are sick and understand their lifestyle. But they're, they're, rather they're focused on pretty much a medical pharmaceutical approach and certainly surgical when, when appropriate. So the result of that is it's a model that the physician after they finish their training typically are a few hundred thousand dollars in debt, real debt. I mean, they don't, they're not, they don't have any net worth. They have to pay bills. And they're introduced into a system where they're given 15 minutes to spend with a patient. 15 minutes. Yeah. What can you do? You can't do a darn thing in 15 minutes other than say hello and how are you doing? Uh, so the system is it, it's just designed to fail. So clearly what's required are positioned extenders. Uh, people like 10 to 15 to 1 where they can invest the time and effort and energy to spend with the patient to address these fundamental issues. And I think any system that doesn't integrate that into the total process is going to be designed for failure. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And what, as I you know, wrote this book and researched and what kept coming back to was the, the overwhelming power of incentives, like you mentioned. And our system is so flawed with regard to incentives. And the biggest offender of that by far is the fee-for-service system where we you know, demand our doctors get paid for every test procedure that they do. And this creates a terrible incentive for them to where they have to think like businessmen and which procedures mm -hmm. might lose money, which gain money. Um, you know, if, this mar if there was a marginal procedure and you have a financial incentive to do it, perhaps you're gonna do it. And this leads to overtreatment. And there's a brilliant example of that in the book. And this was actually done by Atul Gwande. Um, he wrote about this in the New Yorker where McAllen, Texas had two times the Medicare utilization compared to the national average. It was 15,000 per citizen. And it wasn't specific to that demographic region because if you went to El Paso, you know, up the border, same demographics, but it was half the cost there. And so he flew down there to ask why, you know, what, what has gone wrong here? And what had happened was the doctors had just developed this entrepreneurial culture to where they almost competed with each other financially. And you looked at their kind of balance sheets at the doctors and they owned strip malls and real estate 
So they're engaged in all these other activities and really their focus was on money. And so that just putting a pen to paper and writing that article, you know, it had a sterilizing effect. Suddenly the the regulators came in, they looked at all the fraud that was going on. There was, uh, you know, I think 20 million uh, fines levied and the, and the overutilization started to drop. I think 3,000 a year over the next few years. So under that incentive structure, it's not surprising that you see that at all. And when you look at the high quality providers like Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, they they put their physicians on a salary. And the marketplace will reward that behavior because now you can see the data. You can see that if, if somebody you're insuring, you say, for example, Walmart does this now, if they have a, a um, employee with back pain, low back pain, they won't let them go to the local hospital. They fly them to the Mayo Clinic because there, if they don't need a surgery, they won't get one. The doctor has no incentive, financial incentive to operate. Um, so yeah, the incentive structure is entirely backwards. And and now get creative and how do you incentivize doctors to, as you said, be proactive to prevent, to, to shift their mindset to preventative health. And, and I just learned that in that interview as well. There's wonderful ideas where you pay clinics a lump sum um, of number of patients, and then they that then they have to they spend money to take care of their patients throughout the year that comes out of that lump sum. So they keep the profit in the end. Now their entire incentive alignment is towards preventative medicine. They want to keep these people healthy so they can keep more of that pot of money. I think that's a brilliant way to address this problem is just, we have to, and that, that's kind of the underlying theme of this book is, is we really have to take a look at human incentives and what drives human beings, how they make mistakes. And we can design systems around that to do better. So do you have any other examples of systems that may uh, address this, this fundamental flaw in the system, which, you know, allows this human tendency towards reaping financial gains to overcome their initial motivations to enter into the field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like Intermountain Health does a wonderful job there. And then Brent James is their kind of their, their North star. He's the one that implemented all this. And he back when electronic medical record systems were first, you know, kind of getting incorporated, he realized the potential within this. I I think it was the eighties, what you could do with this. And so at Intermountain, what they do Again, they put their doctors on salary, and then the next thing they do is they give them bonuses if, if they have better outcomes. So if their patients do better, they get a bonus. And what they do is they look at the variation in treatment, and this shows up in medical records. You know, you can find it very easily. So, for example, they, they did um, uh, uh, pr- um, inducing pregnancies, and they found out that there was, you know, a huge over their doctors were inducing too many pregnancies early on and this can result in babies being born with respiratory problems so he saw that you know the variation in the doctors too many overall he set guidelines in the emr then to, to induce at a certain time and suddenly those complication rates dropped precipitously from i can remember from three percent and a half to like 1.5 percent so that's what the, at intermountain that's what they do they notice the variation in healthcare which by, you know, in and of itself is shocking when you look at the numbers, like uh, Elira, Ohio, which is 50 miles away from Cleveland, you're, you're three times more likely to get a stent put in there than in Cleveland. In certain counties in Washington state, there's a 15-fold variation in back surgeries. 
Um, it just goes on and on. The variation, you know, there's certain doctors that order, you know, double the amount of MRIs compared to other doctors in the same clinic. So when you notice this variation in the EMR, then Brent James sticks, you know, they start to narrow it down to the best protocol. And they've done this on so many different things. For example, uh, surgical timing of antibiotics. We out, they always give uh, patients perioperatively antibiotics to prevent an infection. But it was never established what's the optimal time to do that. So they just looked at the medical records and found the optimal time was an hour before, and they and dropped their surgical infection rate by half. So, you know, it's just, it takes, what it takes is, there's always a conflict between, we don't want to detract between a physician's intuition. But at the same time, we want to narrow the data down to where they, there's guidelines and what is the optimal protocol. And this is kind of the push-pull in medicine right now, is doctors are complaining because they're, you know, they feel like a noose is tightening around their neck and they call it straitjacket medicine or cookbook medicine. And at the same time, good systems like Intermountain are saying, well, this is, you know, the, the data clearly shows this is the best way to practice medicine, but we still want your best part of what it is to be a human too and a doctor and, and leave your intuition intact. So that's kind of where the, you know, the front argument of medicine is at the moment. So you give another example in the book of uh, Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's partner. And uh, Charlie gave a, a lecture at Harvard, I believe, uh, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, in which he discusses uh, Richard Feynman's, uh, who is a physicist of first principles, that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering how that fits into uh, the practice of medicine and, and how that can uh, help improve the healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. I used, again, you know, there's these wonderful examples in other arenas about how sort of disruptive people have figured out the inefficiencies of the market and ways to exploit that. And the Oakland A is the Moneyball. Michael Lewis's book is a, is a wonderful example, you know, and Berkshire Hathaway was the other one that I found that is a beautiful example. These guys were doing this back in the sixties before Moneyball was a word. And they just simply noticed that, irrational human behavior in, in the financial market, and particularly in the stock market. Um, and what they noticed is there's just irrational waves of euphoria followed by irrational waves of, of gloom and doom. And they would simply, simply install the system to kind of do the opposite of the herd. And it, remarkably simple, but you know, very hard to do in practice. And year after year, all the economists at all the Ivy League schools said it was impossible to do this. The financial markets are 100% efficient. There's this, you know, the guy that, won the, that came up with the efficient market hypothesis won the Nobel Prize. But yet Berkshire Hathaway, year after year, would just beat the market. And if you invested 10,000 with them, I think in 1964, or put 10,000 in the S&P 500, um, you'd have 240 million in Berkshire Hathaway today, and you'd have only 1.5 in the S&P. So it wasn't by a small amount. So these guys learned how to find these efficiencies in the market and exploit them very early on. And that's the example that I tried to use of how, what we need to apply to healthcare. And it just was a fortuitous sort of narrative arc that Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and uh, Jeff Bezos and JP Morgan have consolidated this healthcare consortium called Haven now, um, where Atul Gwande, he is the CEO. And the idea is to recognize these human, you know, these human misjudgment, the bias in thought, and design systems to correct for that. 
and there's, you know, there's so much room for creativity in healthcare because the market is so inefficient that this is a really exciting, you know, we can watch this endeavor from the outside and see how they're doing. Hopefully the government can take, um, you know, notes and apply it to the system. Well, thanks for answering that. And another topic you talk about in the book is the controlled scientific study or experiment that we base most of modern medicine on. And many of us don't realize that this wasn't always the way. And in fact, you allude to a groundbreaking book written in 1865 uh, that uh, was an introduction to the study of experimental medicine mm -hmm. and gained wide acclaim and, and uh, clinicians started applying the principles and the journal started using this. But prior to that, it was uh, pretty much uh, a person's, a clinician's experience that guided things. And, and I think you, I think you even went into the book uh, in describing Halstead, who was a Johns Hopkins surgeon who did the radical, came up with the radical mastectomy, but really had no support for it. If he, if he carefully analyzed his cases, it was just his opinion. Yet at that age of medicine, it was, he had enough influence to spread that, uh, that wide adoption of that, technique which was miserably fa uh, miserable failure and horribly disfigured all these women for no benefit uh, and probably contributed to their premature mortality so I wonder if you can describe that a bit more yeah yeah that, that I love the history you know you learn so much by by just looking back and seeing where what the path that we take and, and I was surprised to find a quote by Hippocrates that that he said that a physician's judgment matters more than any external measurement and, and this really guided medicine in the beginning, you know, the, the 17, 1800s. Um, it consisted of you know, bloodletting of, of these crazy concoctions of herbs and things like that. There may be some benefit for bloodletting. Right, now we know, right. Back then they had no clue, but, but it was always a guess. And it was always, and it, this was even compounded by the fact that, you know, the physical sciences were exploding, physics, chemistry, carefully designed experiments. We were learning so much and medicine was really held back so much by this belief in vitalism that medicine and the human body was not connected to the physical world. It was infused with some force that we were not able to understand. And then medicine is really best left to the kind of mystics and, and people, you know, intuition. And so this, this really hamstrung medicine for a long time. I was shocked to learn that the first well conducted trial was in the 40s on streptomycin in the UK. And that was the first <laughs> randomly controlled trial. And so that's how far it had lagged behind. Um, and then all of a sudden, what's interesting is then it kind of exploded because they, they shifted the patent structure to where pharmaceutical companies, you know, over-the-counter drugs were separated from patented drugs. This launched uh, pharmaceutical companies into this for-profit venture, and they took over, sort of outsourced the randomized controlled trials to them, which exploded them. Then we had randomized controlled trials, and that was the gold standard to determine if a therapy was good, if it was, you know, if it was going to be approved by the regulatory bodies in the world. Now, when you look to, to today, it's become almost, the pendulum has almost swung too far to where that guiding mantra, you have to have this randomized controlled trial and FDA approval for a, for a therapy to be good. Now we miss out on these drugs like metformin that has lost patent 
protection, but it's been in the patient population now for decades. And you can look at the data and you can very clearly see the beneficial effect. Um, one, you know, the amazing study following 70,000 diabetics versus 90,000 non-diabetic control group, the diabetics on metformin lived 15% longer. So there's clearly something to this drug, but it gets, again, all this data gets sort of shoved to the side and not looked at because it's not a randomized control trial and it doesn't have FDA approval. So there's now we, you know, because the pendulum swung too far, we, we miss out on so much. And I can't remember, somebody, a, a physician told me, I think is one of the UK guys, that the doc, it's equivalent of like a doctor is, is skydiving and he's about to jump out and he looks back and says, well, how do I know this parachute's gonna work? It's not been through a randomized control trial. So it, it's, it's swung too far to where, you know, there's reliance on, on this kind of dogmatic assumption that you have to have this gold standard trial and you miss out on so much observational and retrospective data that's meaningful. So I can appreciate the fact that metformin may have some benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, I happen to be prejudiced and really don't ascribe to taking any medications, even ones that have been out for decades and appear to have minimal side effects. I think it's my belief system that they don't really address the fundamental issue of why you're treating that disease and that there's more basic issues or strategies that could more um, effectively address the fundamental cause. But it, it is a big part of your book and your beliefs, and I think you might even be taking it. So, you know, I, I, we had this dialogue by email in the past, and you had mentioned some of the reasons that justified that. Uh, and when I respond to that, it's, you know, I showed you some studies that showed it was a mitochondrial poison and it increased your peak production, but you got a pretty good counter for that. So I just like your perspective on it because I respect your wisdom in this and you've really, you're a careful judge of the literature and I think your opinion is worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I you know, and I, I, there's certain people I really respect the opinion of too. And that, that's kind of led me to the tipping point of it with taking metformin low dose. Um, I think what you first said is worth, worth looking at, staying away from interventions and you know, embracing simple healthcare first, which is just typically stuff your grandma said, go outside and exercise and, and in, eat in a good sun. food. Right, go in the sun, eat good food. And, and there's, a, there's a great, I tried to kind of show this in the book through Charlie Munger, he's got this kind of, he adopted this inverse rule of problem solving. So he uses example. So say you want to help India. Now you shouldn't say, how do I help India? You should say, what's doing India the most damage and try to address that. And I think that that general rule for healthcare is a great idea. What, what can, you know, what is the most simple things I can either take away or do um, that will keep me healthy and, and intervening is usually it always comes with risk unintended side effects. So I, I completely agree with that sort of general strategy. With, with metformin, what sort of swayed me um, is, you know, we just have to accept the fact that we're, we're aging and we're going to die. And this process is, it's natural, but we, you know, it, it is also can be categorized as a disease process. And certain things happen as we age, we just lose the ability to process food well. And, and most people, re, you know, regardless, even if you do a great lifestyle, some people will just develop to where they can't process carbohydrates well. 
And this just happens over time. In fact, the numbers in America, it's over half, over, I think it's 52% of the U.S. adult population is either type 2 diabetic or has prediabetes. It's actually worse than that. Because if you look at insulin resistance, as defined by Joseph Kraft in his book on diabetes, it's upwards of 90% of the U.S. population is, uh, has insulin resistance, which is really should be the definition of uh, prediabetes. So it's, it's almost everyone. Yeah, it, it's, it's a modern-day plague. Um, and and it just, you know, and it, it almost is going to hit everybody over time unless you have great genetics and a perfect lifestyle. So to me, that was, you know, it's kind of a mitigation of that process, which is sort of inevitable. And the data, you know, I would not ever look at something like metformin from a mech. I think people make huge mistakes by looking at mechanisms and try to extrapolate outward. Um, you have to look at the population data. And the thing that really put me over the tipping point was a study I just cited you, that it's taking a, a less healthy population, the type 2 diabetics, and conferring enough, you know, protection that they're actually living longer than the healthy population. And, and we've known these general principles for a long time that if you stress a body in a mild stress, we get this hormetic response, which is a beneficial response. And so metform the way I take it is, is not continuously. I kind of cycle it and, and give the body a chance to, you know, kind of adjust and things like that. But I think there's a lot of benefit and especially when you look at the context of everybody, when, when those numbers you just spoke of, I think you know, metformin can make a real difference to the population. It's just very misvalued. It just doesn't okay. describe a lot. I can accept that. But for the 90% of people who are insulin resistant, and you and I are not in that population. So that's why I'm still surprised and confused why you would perceive there's some benefits that you likely do not have insulin resistance and wouldn't seem to receive, receive some of the benefits that people who do have. Yeah, and it's, it's a judgment call. And I think, you know, until you look at a big population of healthy people, like you know, people if I have no insulin resistance and I'm taking metformin, you really won't know. But the way I take it, I take it at night. You know, there's I'm not even close to when I exercise. And um, I, I just, you know, I think that the data is, is clear enough that the risk is extraordinarily low and there could be a potential benefit down the road. And, and, and you look at, you know, it's, it's the same thing. If, if I was doing intermittent fasting regularly, we're all just trying to tap into this caloric restriction pathway that gets talked about so much, mTOR, AMPK. And that's all metformin is doing. Um, and I, you know, again, I have, I don't fast, so I think it's maybe just a replacement for something that I could do that is non-drug related. Do you, do you do intermittent fasting or uh, time-restricted eating? I try to occasionally. I found that if I do too much fasting, I find that I get GI issues, mm. and so I've kind of, I've actually switched it to where I think I found the antidote to that. It, it just simply I, I need to eat more fiber during those times. I think it kind of somehow must mess with my gut biome. Um, but if you have fiber during that time, actually, uh, the last time I did it now with fiber, I feel better. So, the, you know, there's kind of all these tricks and hacks and each individual has to do it the right way. But that was the one that seemed to work for me to where now I'm going to probably start doing more. Fasting. Interesting. So you, you may be uh, 
interested in exploring a carnivore diet. And Paul Saladino seems to be one of the thought leaders in that space. He's a recently graduated physician who's carefully analyzed the literature and has some very strong, compelling reasons, especially with people who have GI issues. So uh, it seems to be relatively low risk uh, for most people. And uh, there may be some benefits. So it may be not the lack of fiber, but fiber that's causing the problem. Yeah, it could be. And that's, you know, that's the undiscovered country to me is, is all is the gut biome and all these, the right amount of fiber, the right types of fiber, the right bugs in there. And, and again, you know, in the healthcare context, there's some interesting things going on with that. So the people with type two diabetes, carbohydrate intolerance, there's a, you know, you wrote about this in fat for fuel. Mm-hmm. You can induce this form of metabolism called ketosis, which bypasses that pathology. So carbohydrate intolerance, when you eat carbohydrates, you, you have to, there's a series of steps involved where your body insula, releases insulin, a pore comes and lets glucose from the bloodstream into the cell while it gets processed. That process just wears out. So with ketosis, you, you drop insulin, you drop obviously blood sugar, and you introduce this new fuel that enters the cell through a different pore, an MCT, monocarboxylic acid transport protein. And it's a completely separate sort of fuel mechanism that bypasses all that pathology. So it's a beautiful, you know, it's in all of us. It just, I would, I would venture a guess that the vast majority of Americans never enter that state, Um, but it's right there for us. And so, you know, there's clever clinicians and scientists that have started this company called Verta Health. Um, Wonder, I, I think they had 40 million in startup money and it's a drugless intervention, purely dietary for type two diabetes all done remotely, very good patient access. And their numbers the first year, you know, are incredible. They, they have huge reductions in A1C, insulin use, um, and so forth. And it's all based on, you know, this, this ketogenic metabolism. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, it's interesting. One of the side effects of the carnivore diet is there's zero carbohydrates. So within a short amount of time, you're literally highly ketogenic. I mean, typically ketones in the to level 2.0 or higher level. So that's an inter- inter- interesting strategy, but there's another fuel that also utilizes the monocarboxylase transporter and, or MCT transporter, and that is lactate, which is uh, previously thought to be a waste product, a metabolic waste product, and they have no beneficial use. But now the trend is to consider it as a pseudo hormone. And if you can generate high levels of lactate with specific types of exercises and release that lactate into the blood, your brain can actually survive on 60% of its fuel is lactate. So it's another fuel other than glucose that your, your brain can utilize aside from ketones. That, yeah, that's new to me. That, that, that's another, you know, we keep discovering these un, unknown things about metabolism and learning. That's, that's unreal. Yeah, so that's one of my new passions now is a form of training called blood flow restriction, which addresses probably more effectively than any, any other intervention known the massive rise in sarcopenia. We have about 25% of the people, once they reach 60, are not having enough muscle mass. And that rises to 60% by the time you're 80. So it's an epidemic. And you really, muscle is such a valuable resource. It's not just for function and to avoid frailty, but it also is a metabolic endocrine organ. It releases cytokines and myokines. And it's also 50% of your body tissue. really the major reservoir of glucose. So when you eat a meal that has sugar, 
where is it going to go first? Ideally, it's going into your muscles. And if you don't have a lot of muscle tissue, you're going to be highly, uh, at much higher risk of insulin resistance. So it's a big, it's a big issue. So anyway, that's an aside. I just thought it was important since it's one of my new passions. But one of my other passions, and it's a new passion because it's a subset of a broader one, which we both share. And I was very intrigued when we, I think the last time we met, it was the Best Answers for Cancer in Orlando a few years ago. And you were, you were in the process of an early draft of your book. And when you first described it, it was nothing like what you sent for me to review because you, you, you ex shared with me uh, something I'd never heard of before, but since I've learned is it, it, perhaps the biggest bet we have to actually crossing that bridge to getting over 120, which is uh, cellular reprogramming, as David Sinclair refers to it, or uh, use the use of what's known as the Yamanaka transcription factors to actually re to edit your genome to reset the epigenetic clock and the DNA methylation. So. I wonder if you can comment on that and how your book morphed from that concept into curable. Yeah, I think I misrepresented it the first time. Because <laughs> uh, it was, that, I was just so jazzed after that conversation. Yeah, I, and I, I started I, going to literature and I just, you sent me some of the articles and I just have this, you know, was just voraciously interested in, in that material. Not, not that that topic is not deserving of its own book. And I, I, I am completely fascinated by it. It's really, I think it's not known as widely as it could be. And it's hard to explain. You know, I always tell people about it and it's, it's kind of lost. Yeah, I, I missed it the first time until I started reading the papers and I finally got it. Clicked in. Yeah, right. So forever, you know, longevity science is focused on caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. That's the reliable way to extend mammalian lifespans, you know, all the way down from very simple metazoan creatures to we think primates and us. But it's a little, little less known fact that the longer lived the species, the less likely caloric restriction is going to work. Um, but nevertheless, we can focus on health span, and all of these caloric restriction pathways are really well mapped out now. You know, we know about mTOR, AMP kinase, sirtuins, and NAD is the biggest um, sort of you know next blockbuster intervention because it, it's kind of triggers those pathways. Uh, this is outside of that. And what we call this is, is epigenetic rejuvenation. And I think that's kind of the term that's been settled on it. And when you think about humans, about our species, about all life for that matter, we are essentially immortal in the fact that we take our aged germline cells and we recombine them through the process of fertilization to create a new life. And that life is biological age zero when it, when it comes into being. And so how does that happen? And the way that happens is it takes our, you know, our 23 chromosomes from the mom and 23 from the dad. And there's a process in the egg that wipes off the, the processing the, the software. And the software in the genome is the epigenome. So there's molecular tags on our DNA that are wiped clean and then new ones are put on. And this kicks off the process of embryogenesis. In the process, it resets the aging clock. So now we're starting to learn that you can do this. You can take a cell off you or me, Joe, and put it in a Petri dish, add these factors. They discovered there's four factors that are involved in this process, and you will reset the epigenome back to age zero. Now, you know, you can take a 90-year-old skin cells and do this. 
And then potentially now it's a therapy. You can inject these back into them. You can come up with you know, tissue regenerative strategies. David's, or, uh, David Sinclair and others have recognized the potential of this. They're doing it in vitro. I mean, sorry, in vivo. Yeah. So you can express these similar factors within our bodies, our aged bodies, and rejuvenate them from the inside out. So we're sort of, you're sort of co-opting nature's intellectual property that it uses to reset the aging clock during fertilization to our age bodies today. And I know it sounds like science fiction, but it, it is the next frontier in aging biology. And it's just a matter of time before, yeah. you know, yeah. there's viable therapies that actually start to re, not, de, not slow down aging in people, but to reset it, to, to wind their clock backwards. So that, I hope that's a good explanation. That was great. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And I actually interviewed David Sinclair for his new book on longevity, which should air before this video airs. And uh, yes, indeed, he has done in vivo work, uh, but that wasn't in humans, it was in animals. I believe it was in mice or rats, where he, he described on our, in our interview some fascinating pre-publication results that he, he's accomplished. I mean, basically turning blinded, giving blinded animals their sight back. Uh, and I forget what how the loss of vision was initially uh, achieved, but uh, pretty remarkable results. And I, I do think that we this we need these bridge therapies to get beyond 120, because all the caloric restriction, all the metformin, all the rapamycin, all the little biohack tricks that we know, sleeping perfectly, having perfect insulin balance, is only going to get us to 120. That's right. it. There's no, I maybe 125, but you know the record is 122. So we're no one's getting beyond that without some some reprogramming of the, of the genome. So that uh, was a very elegant and succinct definition of the exciting potential that these therapies have. And, and really, in my mind, a, a profound motivation to live healthy because, you know, it's not just living to 120 and, you know, in a bed, bedridden and frail. I mean, we're talking living there, essentially, hopefully having all the functions and abilities you did as a 50-year-old. Yeah, and the science leads us there. You, you, we have much more control over our destiny, I think, than we previously realized. We grew up in the era of where, where genetics really was the centerpiece of everything. We thought, you know, genes controlled most of our destiny. And for example, around 2000, when the first rough draft of the human genome was done, Francis Collins, who was then the director of, of the NIH, predicted there'd be about 12 genes involved in type 2 diabetes and we'd know what those were and then we'd know how to design interventions. There turned out to be hundreds and it turns out that the genetic variation between us as individuals is much lower than, than presupposed back then. So the question then comes, if, if less of our sort of destiny and you know propensity for disease and longevity is determined by really a fixed process of our inherited genetics, what's the other process? And it turns out the split is about 20 to 80. So 20% of our destiny is determined by our, our inherited genes and 80% is determined by nurture, um, by the variables, you know, the toxins we're exposed to, love, elation, all of these things we experience day to day have an impact. And now we know the impact is our epigenome. It changes the way genes are, are expressed and this has a, a massive impact on our health. And we know this because of twin studies. When you have two perfect clones um, in, in identical twins, 
when you track them over time, what you see is their destinies are very different. They very rarely die of the same diseases. And so this nurture aspect, this 80% I talked about, that's, that's where, you know, that's the part of where we can, like you mentioned, we have control over how we can, how we can live our lives and change these variables. And I, I looked at that in the book, um, what, what sort of are our misconceptions that we have, because under underlying theme is these kind of medical biases. What's our misconceptions as individuals about our own health? And the biggest factor, I was surprised to learn this, when you look at epidemiologically, what are the most important factors to stay healthy and live a long life? And we always think of diet, exercise, genetics. Again, genetics is the minority part. The biggest factor is, is your social life and how engaged you are in the world, the number of close friends you have, the number of what they call social integration. So how many people you talk to throughout the day? Do you say hi to the mailman? You talk, chat with people at the gym? And that's got a massive influence on our immune system. So when you're, when you're lonely, you have this sort of corrosive inflammatory response. But when you're not lonely, you have, you, your immune system has a more targeted response. And inflammation, as we know, is a root cause of so many cardiovascular disease, cancer, so many chronic diseases. And that's kind of why these blue zones get so much attention. That's the constant variable is there's very a dense architecture. People are connected and they're surrounded by each other all the time. And that's where you have Sardinia is one of them, where you have 10 times the number of, of centurions than you do in, in North America. So it's kind of in my, you know, in writing the book, it was beautiful to find that sort of what a good life is, you know, being engaged in the world, exercising, and all those, those things do matter, of course but being social, which, you know, now you lo lose the realm of data and you enter the sort of, how do you live an artistic kind of engaged life? And I thought it was, you know, a, a neat place where the science has taken us. Yeah, and let me, <laughs> and let me, uh, and let me just tie up some of the loose ends here and connect the dots that, of the excellent information you just stated, in that this epigenetic programming that we have due to our environmental factors, you know, far outweigh the influence of our gen genetics, but it does in a very specific way. And it's usually true the transcription factors that either methylate the DNA, put these small one carbon molecules on the DNA, which essentially silence that specific genome, or they acetylate it, and which activates those genes. So depending on the combination of shutting off and turning on the genes, you get the expression of the genome. So it's not what you're inherited, but your expression of the genome that is so important, which is really how the, these lifestyle factors influence our genes. And then as we talked about earlier, you described so elegantly is that, yes, the environment can do it, that, but we can actually get in there with gene editing and make some changes too. Precisely, yeah. That, that again, CRISPR, you know, not just edits DNA, the code, but now it, it, you can actually edit those methyl groups with CRISPR as well. So we're finding ways to directly influence the epigenome. And, and you know, uh, ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate, is an epigenetic, uh, it's an HDAC inhibitor. Yeah. So all of these, yeah, you know, when we, were in, when we were in school, when I was in school, we were told we have 20, you know, the guess was we had how many genes? 30,000, 100,000. We end up, we have 22,000 genes. Our genomes only, that's 2% of our genomes. And so the other 98% was considered junk. But now we know what that 98% is, is this epigenetic mosh pit of non-coding RNA, all of these things going on. 
And you could never really, you could not, scientists couldn't relate the complexity of an organism to its DNA because there was lesser organisms like say puffer fish, for example, that have a, a larger quantity of DNA than us, but we're clearly more complex creatures. And the answer turned out to be the richness of the epigenome. We just have, there is so much going on. So our, you can think of our 22,000 genes as a piano and you know, uh, the puffer fish has got the same piano, but it's playing uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb, where our, our genome is playing Mozart. So it's, it's and, and this relates to everything, this change in gene expression. You know, for example, the BRCA mutation, we're used to hearing the sort of Angelina Jolie version, which is inherited germline mutation and confers a higher risk of cancer. However, people, unlucky people, for whatever reason, exposure to toxins, they can be born with a BRCA that is hypermethylated, so it's turned off. And think about that, it's the same function. If you're inherited a mutated version, you've lost the functional, lost a functional BRCA protein. If you inherit, or if you have a hypermethylated version, it's turned down, and it's the same thing as loss of function. So these people have a way higher propensity for childhood leukemia and thyroid cancer. So yeah, it, it, and it, the good news about the epigenome is it's able to be manipulated. We can change it, and you know, from lifestyle factors all the way to these Yamanaka factors that, that kind of reset it back to a younger age. Yeah, and the other, and the other part of the equation is the what was previously called junk DNA. We know now know is mostly non-coding RNA. These very small RNA molecules that actually don't transcribe proteins off the DNA, but have other important regulatory functions. Yeah, and, and, and scientists, you know, I think there was some at MIT, they're using to use these as drugs. Not, they've learned to stabilize them, and we can start to, start to then directly manipulate gene expression. Um, you know, in my personal view of cancer, I view cancer as a primarily a sort of metabolic epigenetic disease. And now this group at MIT is looking at direct you know, uh, uh, non-coding RNA to change the genetic expression of cancer cells. With, with tremendous outcomes so far in mice. Um, and that's one of the reasons, you know, we see intermittent fasting, metformin, um, all of these things that change gene expression are these viable sort of adjunctive cancer therapies that are being developed. Yeah. So all in all, so all in all, powerful information to motivate you and your family, hopefully, to apply these interventions because not only will it radically decrease your risk for all sorts of diseases that almost everyone seems to be experiencing that you know, uh, and you could avoid the central challenge with the American healthcare system, which is probably one of the worst in the world, and certainly not designed to help protect you against disease. So you want to stay out of that system as much as possible. In fact, I've done interviews with Dr. Saul and others to give you specific recommendations. I mean, if you happen to go to the hospital, you almost have to have someone stay in your room all night long if you, if you want to have a good hope of staying alive because there's a good chance you could die in the hospital just by a simple mistake. That's just the nature of the business system. But let alone the predatory billing practices that the whole they, almost the entire system is designed to, and, and really, as we referenced earlier, one in five families in this country have medical debt, and it's the largest contributor to bankruptcy. So there's, these are all powerful motivations just to do the simple things that are usually inexpensive. Uh, it's not necessarily a shopping bag full of supplements. It's a simple, basic sleeping well, 
uh, choosing the right foods, choosing when not to eat, what time restricted eating and exercising, getting plenty of sunshine. Now, these are simple basics that uh, pretty much everyone could apply to radically improve their health and avoid the medical care system. So you don't have to buy Travis's excellent book, Curable, because you're not going to be involved in the system. No, actually you do, because it is a good book. It's a great book. Travis is one of my favorite authors, and I really enjoy the way he tells the story and makes it a very readable readable book. So uh, if you're interested in this topic, highly recommend it, Curable, and it's, it's out probably. You can get it on Amazon now. Yeah, yeah, one month, one month. And you, you, you couldn't have ended on a you know, more elegant notes stay you know if you can stay out of it and the numbers are scary there i think it's 200,000 people die every year from medical air um, i learned one that 7,000 people die from sloppy physician handwriting uh, if you're in the hospital for four weeks you have about a coin flip chance of developing c diff which is a horrible horrible uh intestinal infection um yeah, anytime you can stay out of that system, not you know, not just the financial, but the real health risks. Um, and, and that, you know, we didn't even touch on the overtreatment in cancer that, that is so rapid oh, no. that you could just go on and on. But yeah, I think you're right. The focus, things you've been saying for such a long time, Joe, to, to the masses, um, is your best. You know, your best kind of. I, my editor said something to me when I was writing the book that I thought was beautiful. You can be your sort you know, your, your own culture of one when it comes to health by just these very simple things. And then, then, and then, and then the, you know, the implementation and the support and the uh, just being with, with other people and that in and of itself is healthcare. I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's, but, but, but it's even worse than that, Travis. I, I created a meme in 2000 nearly 20 years ago now, in July of 2000, I read the JAMA uh, study that said, that talked about physician errors. And I concluded that physicians were the third leading cause of death. And if you look at the numbers in that study, it was true. Uh, ironically, the uh, study was published by Barbara Starfield, who is an MD, PhD of Stanford. And ironic because literally 11 years later, she died from, from a medical side effect. She took Plavix and had some type of complication from it. So even the author of the study was killed. And, and interestingly, they don't discriminate. You know, this video is, it, it, I believe, in, uh, airing in September. And in July of this year, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. And the first man on the moon, is, I'm sure everyone watching this knows, was Neil Armstrong. And he died from a medical mistake. You may not know that, but it was leaked to the New York Times on the anniversary. And so they don't, they don't, they don't discriminate. They kill even America's greatest heroes. You know, you don't, it doesn't matter. You're at risk. So, you know, and, and really, my, my meme was doctors are thirdly in cause of death, but the reality is that the American medical system is by far, unquestionably, the leading cause of death in the United States and the world. Why? Not because they're killing people by mistakes or indirectly. Well, they're killing people indirectly because they're failing to understand what the primary foundational cause of disease is. And by failing to address that at the fundamental level, we're causing premature death and needless pain and suffering in virtually the, the majority of the population. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I learned something. There's a stat that really burned in my mind you know, we've, we've 
had such a focus on early detection for cancer. And we've gotten much better on it, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, P, uh, prostate. However, that hasn't changed the death rates at all, but it's led to an incredible amount of overtreatment, unnecessary treatment, because most of these tumors are not dangerous at that point. Uh, the one is, if you are diagnosed with cancer from a PSA test, prostate cancer, you're 47 times more likely to receive damaging treatment, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, than you are to have your life extended. And the problem with that, this now, is the way you frame it. If you, when a doctor says the word cancer, the patient almost demands treatment. So l let me tell you the power of, you know, of, of human incentives and the way we talk. There, in the 80s, there was two treatments for lung cancer. There was surgery and radiation. Surgery gave you a better chance of survival. If the doctor, but it also came with a 10% risk of death. So if the doctor said you have a 90% chance of surviving the surgery, um, patients went for surgery 84% of the time. If the doctor said you have a 10% chance of death from the surgery, they only went for surgery 50% of the time. So our, our, our minds are, are wired, and you can, you can show this now, we know it that very clearly, we're wired to have a bias for, for loss aversion. And that's why you see that what should be a raw assessment of that data you to make that decision is, is twisted by a human bias. And so that, you know, that, that spins back to all of this overtreatment and how do we address that? And I think we just have to acknowledge the fact, you know, one dangerous tumor you might miss, but the other hundred that you overtreat is more of a burden on the system than the one you might miss. And so it's a reframing of how we think of, you know, you're right, of how we're doing, how we're performing medicine. Yeah, you, you, could, you could extend that argument to vaccines too, for the greater good, supposedly, but they're ignoring all the people they're injuring, which are a number of thousands of times, typically to one, for the one person who, who may be benefiting from it. So it's a flawed system. That's why I need to pick up the book, Curable, Read it so you'll be even more motivated to follow these healthy strategies. So I really appreciate you, Travis, and writing the book and providing such a great resource. Thank you. Great. Fun conversation. Thank you.